Welcome to the Park Podcast, where dialogue across difference is vital to community wellness. I'm Dr. Leah Howard, your host in the space where open dialogue, the free exchange of ideas, and civil and robust expression of divergent views is valued. Here we will explore the research, the practical applications, and the benefits of effective, ethical, and civil dialogue in a diverse world. We hope to model respectful conversation that accurately and authentically frames contentious issues, hoping to reach an ideologically diverse audience. Gen Z is remarkable in terms of their social activism. Before they could vote, many had already participated in protest marches, letter and social media campaigns, and outspoken advocacy around issues they are passionate about. Direct action can be empowering, and marching with others can produce strong feelings of cohesiveness and connection around shared ideals. Yet at the same time, social and political change can be slow, and advocacy without results can be deeply discouraging, especially if the issues at hand are existential. How do we care for ourselves during the slow, challenging work of social change? This series interviews Penn alumni working to change some of America's most intractable social problems, to ask them how are they taking care of themselves so that they can sustain their fight on behalf of others. It examines the intellectual, social, and contemplative practices that leaders in the arena of social change are embracing to inform their work. Offering examples and real-world experiences, this series speaks to current Penn undergrads, hoping to better undergird their own social action with integrative and sustaining practices. We are so delighted to host Fran Oliveras for our first episode in this new series. A friend's stunning book, My Son Will Die of Sorrow, a memoir of immigration from the front lines, was just released this summer. In it, a friend weaves together his experience as a human rights lawyer working for the Texas Civil Rights Project in 2018 when the Trump administration instituted the zero tolerance policy and began to separate families at the border with his own story as an immigrant to the U.S., I enjoyed the book so much, and I'm so glad to have an opportunity to chat about the book on the park. Efren, welcome. Thank you. Could you tell us a bit about your career journey since you left Penn? What work are you currently involved in, and what led you to this type of social change? You know, I, I graduated from the college in 2005, and when I was in, in college, I, I majored in philosophy, politics, and economics, and that is when I had you know, my social justice awakening, learning about so many things that are unjust in our society and the populations, the communities that have been marginalized and oppressed and, and wanting to do something about it. I thought that getting a law degree would be a good way to try to improve the, the conditions of, of so many in our country and other parts of the world. So I went to law school after Penn. I went straight through um, and always wanted to go into nonprofit public interest law. When I was in law school, my father passed away during my second year. So I decided to go to a different job right out of law school and, and go to a law firm instead of the public interest route right away, trying to help my mother um, financially. So I did that. I had 
hoped to do that for three years. I ended up doing it for about four years, uh, three years and 11 months, but who was counting? Um, and then I left the law firm to do a human rights fellowship at the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. And from there, I, I took the nonprofit route and, and went to this organization in Texas called the Texas Civil Rights Project based in South Texas and do, working on civil rights issues related to immigrants, to border communities. And I was there for almost seven years until I was recruited to come direct the Immigrant Justice Project at the Southern Poverty Law Center. So I've been in this role for almost two years now. Now I'm based in, in Atlanta directing a team of, of lawyers and advocates working for justice for immigrants in the South, in the Deep South in particular, on issues like immigrant detention, workers' rights, family separation, and, and several other issues related to immigrants' rights. And what an incredible journey. Thank you for sharing your, your process with us. Could you describe the particular problems you seek to address, the specific issue areas? You just mentioned them. Talk a little bit more about them and where you're seeking and working for change. You know, the issue of immigrants' rights and immigrant justice could be solved so easily at the, at the conceptual level if we simply eliminated discrimination on the basis of immigration status that would address so many of the issues that immigrants face in this country, right? You wouldn't have immigrant detention because nobody would be incarcerated simply because of their immigration status. You wouldn't have discrimination against immigrant workers and wage theft uh, in the immigrant justice context because nobody would be discriminated on the basis of immigration status. And asylum seekers, similarly, will be able to find haven and protection. Um, and if one believes in human rights, right, that every human being, by virtue of being a human being, has the right to certain baseline rights and protections, then the place of one's birth shouldn't be that determinative of one's, of how one fares in society. Unfortunately, discrimination on the basis of immigration status is legal in the U.S., and that poses a lot of challenges, um, for example, some states deny uh, driver's license based on immigration status. You can get one in California and Massachusetts, but you cannot get one in Texas if you're undocumented, for example. So um, that that is a challenge, but that is the one issue. That's the most succinct way that I can describe what we're trying to do, and that is eliminate discrimination on the basis of immigration status. Thank you so much. Um what is your motivation for this work? And why do you do the work that you do? What drives you and helps you to continue to do this hard work of social and community change? It's hard. It's hard work and it's not it's not getting any easier, unfortunately. I think the more work that you do in the social justice sphere, the more aware you become of how how high the mountain that we're trying to climb up is. Uh, but I, you know, I, I think what drives me today is, is largely the same thing that has driven me my entire career, which is this desire to leave the world a slightly better place than we found it. Not only for our own children, but for future generations more generally, you know, do our share of the work to make this society, this country, this world uh, a more just place where, again, people's 
fate is not determined by arbitrary characteristics such as one's birthplace or the color of one's skin, but rather by by you know what kind of person you are, how you relate to others, um, and and that conviction continues to drive me today. As I said, it, it's become harder, <laughs> but but I go back to that uh, every time that that is a worthwhile pursuit, as difficult as it is. I love that, leaving the world a little bit better. I really appreciate the work you're doing. And so I want to turn to a, a whole series of questions now about how you care for yourself. You just mentioned that it's hard, this this work. And so how do you care for yourself during the slow, challenging work of social change? How do you integrate personal wellness, work-life balance, and self-care with your professional work? I said earlier that kind of the, the driving motivation is the same today as it was before, as it has been most of my career. One thing that has changed, and, and I think the last, I don't know, seven years or so have have resulted in this is having a, a different perspective of my role in the fight for social justice. And what I mean by that is that when I was in law school, and, and I don't think this is unique to me, I think a lot of lawyers, especially those of us who go, go into public interest or social justice work, we have this vision of what the work will look like and what winning will look like, right? We, we think of the big Supreme Court case wins, the Brown versus Board of Education, those landmark cases that, you know, you cross the finish line and you have a very concrete and specific victory to point to. The last few years, and especially this, this year, and when it comes to the legal work for social justice, I've found myself shifting that perspective and seeing my role in the fight, not so much as crossing the finish line, but rather just keep the ball moving forward, keep pushing the ball forward so that those who come behind me can keep on pushing, right? Just make sure that that ball doesn't roll backwards too far and keep pushing it because that is more sustainable. Uh, if, if I keep trying to get to that finish line myself, it feels so far away some days and some nights that, that it becomes crushing. But just thinking, okay, I don't have to get it to the finish line. I just need to keep pushing. Doing that, My job is to keep pushing so that others can push along with me today and especially tomorrow. And that, that shifting mindset has been helpful for me because that makes it more sustainable. Um, I... I consider myself an optimist. So I do think that there are wins to secure and I look forward to those. Um, but I think seeing that broader perspective has been helpful. And then the other thing that is uh, an ongoing fuel for this work is the direct human connection. It's so easy to get lost in the kind of policy conversations and, you know, the legal issues and legislation and things like that. But interacting directly with impacted individuals can be such a source of, of inspiration and fuel because it's a clear reminder of why this work matters. And just like hearing somebody's traumatic experience, you know, traveling from Central America and crossing Mexico by foot and by bus and hitchhiking can be can give you some secondary trauma I 
feel like that same space in your mind and your heart is what then is fueled when you hear the stories of resilience and perseverance of, of from my clients that they have overcome and that keeps me going even if it's only one person one family right so not the landmark case that i was talking about the systemic change but that human connection is also so necessary and so vital to sustain ourselves in this work Efren, thank you so much. I appreciate that both mindset and human connection as uh, practical ways uh, to care for yourself. Can I just deep dive a little bit more? You've you've alluded um, many times to the discouraging aspects of your job, and I just wanted to know if you could tell us a little bit more. What is discouraging about the work that you do? Well, a lot of my work is, is litigation, winning in court or using the courts to try to affect social change. And given some recent Supreme Court decisions, both in the immigration context, uh, perhaps most notably the Dobbs decision in the reproductive rights context, that has created a reality of, well, we might be stuck with the current Supreme Court for 20, 30, 40 years. And it's unlikely that we will see progressive social change from the courts. So trying to square that with trying to find a victory and trying to, like I was saying earlier, find the, the reason to motivate myself and keep going by if we do X or Y thing, we're going to win in court. That has made it very, very challenging. So that is when the, the mindset shift has been helpful. Like, okay, we may not see um, victories in the Supreme Court very soon, but that's okay. This is perhaps not the most challenging court that there has been in, in the history of this country, right? There was a time when things were less aligned with progressive values, with what I would describe as social justice. So this is our turn. This is our generation's task is to keep pushing so that another generation keeps coming behind us and maybe they will secure the victories in court. Thank you. Excellent. What kinds of things, practices keep you centered as you, um, you know, you have this wonderful mindset and you have um, wonderful connections with people. What other things keep you centered amidst this, this kind of discouraging um, moment? I have taken up meditation recently, recently in the last two or three years. And the weeks that I manage to meditate regularly, 10 minutes a day using a meditation app, and there are a ton out there, I see the difference, right? And in keeping perspective when it comes to the work and the challenges that we face. So meditation has been very, very helpful. Any creative outlets, I, I find also very de-stressing. I'm terrible, terrible at playing the acoustic guitar, but I love it. So whenever I find the time to spend, even if it's 15, 20 minutes on the guitar, that is just another part of my brain that is engaged. And I find that very helpful as well. I used to play soccer uh, for many years, but then age and injuries and having children have made that more challenging. So I don't play as often as I would like. But that, I, again, finding activities that you're just not stuck thinking about the issues of the day and the work and the challenges have been really helpful for me. Yeah, those would be, I think, the, the three things that I would highlight. 
Um, I want to think about how you practically manage the psychological and emotional stress of this work as well. You mentioned um, having children. And as you care for vulnerable populations, how do you continue to maintain your own core emotional strength? In your book, you describe the challenges of being a father yourself and caring for your own children while working with deeply distraught parents unable to locate their children in the harrowing aftermath of zero tolerance. You could deeply empathize as a father, yet the grief could feel overwhelming. And those parts of your book were so powerful to read um, and uh, deeply I could empathize in so many ways. How do you balance these, these things? That, that is a, a very difficult part of the work. And, and to this day, we're still involved in some of the family separation work, and it's very difficult. You know, unlike some other parts of my book that, frankly, I hadn't reflected on for many years until I was writing the book, this issue of having my, old, my own children, and at the time, in 2018, we had my wife, Carla, and I only had one, our, our son. And seeing the contrast of being able, being privileged, being blessed to have our child with us, be able to put him to bed every night, hug him tight, and hearing in the morning from the parents that they had no idea where their children were or when or whether they might see them again, that was so difficult at the time. You know, it didn't take months or years of reflection to realize that. It was in real time as it was happening. And it was very hard because on the one hand, you, you end up considering yourself privileged in a way. It, it becomes a privilege. Just being able to put your own son to bed every night becomes a privilege in that context. And seeing that my clients were as resilient as they were ended up giving me fuel to keep going. But it's, it's a challenge that I am still struggling to process and, and working through because, as I was saying earlier, that human connection became the human connection not only of hearing my clients' stories and experiences, but also my own as I was contrasting my, my circumstances and situation with my family with those of my clients. Thank you so much. We've been thinking a lot in the SNF Padilla program about exactly what you're talking about, these concentric circles of care, how our self-care, community care, and social activism are connected. We're trying to better understand how an individual's ability to be an effective change maker is connected to a wider circle of community wellness, that we are not individuals fully in control of the social structure, but we can draw strength from others as we fight for social change together. Could you share about how and if you're able to look at the community you're advocating for to provide you with support when your individual efforts to change rigid power structures seem fruitless, does and can your community contribute to your own personal well-being? I absolutely think it can and it does. I think in this in this work, and, and this is something I talk about in the book, that I, I am an immigrant myself. I moved to the U.S. from Mexico at the age of 13. So I, you know, I see myself as part of the impacted population that I try to represent and, and, and serve. And that, to me, you know, making sure that those involved in the fight are part of the impacted community is so key because then we're all in this together. 
and that we're all in this together is what keeps us going. I, I am convinced that, you know, humans are social creatures and this pandemic has made it very, very challenging because of the isolation. But we, we crave that social connection and interaction with family, with friends, neighbors, community members. And that is so key. And when that is missing from the movement, it, it you know, makes us detached. We're simply co-workers or colleagues or, you know, depending on the context, co-advocates. But if we're members of the same community, we have a common purpose. And if we have that common purpose, even if we're not in the same organization or working around the same issue, but if we're in the same community, if we're part of a community that has a common purpose, that can be so sustaining because then we're just doing it not just as a chore or even just as a job, right? But as a, as a life purpose or a professional purpose. And it, it's challenging because I, I see this very often uh, from lawyers and advocates in the, in the social justice space that for a lot of us, our jobs is not just a job. It's a, li it's a mission. It's a life purpose. And that can be problematic too, right? We're all human beings way more than whatever job we have, even if our job is in social justice. But we, we and, and when I say we, I mean those of us in the social justice space, tend to, you know, be on, on email until late hours in the evening or on weekends, because what we're doing is so important. We're trying to leave the world a better place, right? So I also try to keep remind myself every now and then that actually it's a job too. And I am a human being outside my professional context with other hopes and aspirations and interests and desires be outside of that work. So it, it's hard. And I think it's something that is very common in the social justice space, not in the private sector space where, you know, people clock out and that's the end of the workday. Um, it's a challenge. I try to remind myself of that and, and try to strike that balance. And I have found it helpful, you know, to put that in perspective that as much as I care about it and as much as I see it as, as a life purpose, it is a job. And I have a family outside of that and uh, um, other interests. And that perspective is also helpful. So I, I know I'm, that may sound inconsistent with the first part of my answer, because I do think that viewing it as, as a purpose is sustaining and, and fueling, but it has its limits. I don't mean to say that, you know, see it as a purpose and therefore it should be everything that you're doing late into the night and on weekends, because then... I am I'm concerned with the excesses that can come from that. So it's I think both perspectives are, are useful and, and reminding ourselves of, of both is, is the key. Thank you so much for complicating this for us because that's, these are exactly the kinds of questions we've been thinking about with this with this series and we appreciate your diving deep into that. I want to also plug your book a million times because I think your book talks about these things in really important ways too and introduces us to members of the community by name and we get to do deep dive stories into to the folks and the the um, issues they're dealing with by name and and by circumstance so thank you for for all of that and I want to just end what gives you hope I think what gives me the most hope is my clients in this work who despite the challenges, despite discrimination, despite everything that they have gone through, they keep going. 
for their loved ones, whether it is their family, their children, whoever it is, they find it in themselves to keep pushing. And if they can push, I can certainly push. So I think that's what that's what gives me hope. Um, I think a, another common answer is kind of the young people and the future generations, the Gen Z that you were talking about at the top of the hour. I think that also gives me hope. But I, I, I don't like framing it as hope is in the future because I find hope in the present. And I find it in, in my clients primarily. Efren Oliveras, I cannot thank you enough for joining us, for sharing so well and so deeply with us um, on the park. And thank you for the work you do. And we're so excited to have you come to Penn to visit us soon. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation and I look forward to seeing all of you in September. This concludes our first episode of the park's new series entitled Self-Care, Community Care, and Social Change. During this series, we are interviewing Penn alumni, asking them how they are taking care of themselves and their communities as they engage in social change. We were so delighted to host Efren Oliveras for our first episode of this new series. His book, My Son Will Die of Sorrow, a memoir of immigration from the front lines, is an account of what it was like to be a human rights lawyer as the Trump administration's zero-tolerance policy actively separated parents from their children at the Texas border. It is also a memoir of his own experience as an immigrant to the United States from Mexico. In our interview today, a friend shared with us both the visionary as well as practical ways he fuels his work as the legal director of the Immigrant Justice Project at the Southern Poverty Law Center. A friend's insights on how to balance self-care and sustained social justice work through a change of perspective and through direct connections with his community provides a wonderful entry into broader conversations on the connection between individual and community wellness. Please join us next time, October 11th, for our next interview with a Penn alumni active in social change space as they give us insights on how they care for themselves and their communities to sustain their good work.